Well, good morning and welcome to the Oaks Church. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Terry Lee. I'm one of the pastors here at the Oaks. I uh, just want you to know that whether you are a first-time guest or you call the Oaks Church home, I'm really grateful that you're worshiping with us this morning. There are a lot of places you could be on a Sunday morning, and I'm grateful that you've gathered here uh, to speak to God through prayer, uh, to worship God through song, and to hear from God in His Word. I want you to know that if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, we would love to give you one. We've got several on our tables in the back. Please pick one of those up as you head out the door today. Um, if you're a first-time guest or you're here and you've never received one of our guest bags, please grab one of those. It's just a gift to you as you exit today. Go ahead and find Romans chapter 10. We're going to be looking at Romans 10 and, uh, and specifically what this call is that God has placed on each and every life of the believer. This is such a great text. Um, as, as I was looking at Romans 10, specifically verses 14 through 21 this week, uh, I was reminded of a very unique sporting event that exists in Alaska, the Iditarod. Maybe some of you are familiar with the Iditarod races. Uh, there are mushers, these guys that are on sleds, and uh, there are this, this pack of dogs that run these sleds all the way from Anchorage, Alaska, to Nome every year. It's, it's this huge sporting event that just, you know, kind of takes over uh, everyone in the area. It's celebrated, and, and, you know, people have their favorite teams that they're, they're pulling for, and, and all, of these, all of these different things, this fanfare that surrounds it. But what many people don't know is that that race from Anchorage to a place called Nome in Alaska actually began as an effort to save the lives of a ton of children. You see, in 1925, uh, there was this virus, a respiratory virus that uh, was in Nome, this small town, this little mining town of 1,400 people. And this, this respiratory virus was spreading, and if untreated, it was almost certainly fatal. And, and so news came that it was spreading, something needed to be done about it, and the serum that would, would cause all the, the children to survive that were coming down with this virus uh, was in Anchorage. And so the, the news went out that there was a great need. There was dire need in this place. And uh, there were, you know, 300,000 vials of this serum available in Anchorage. And so the clock was ticking. Uh, the, the desire to, to get this from one area to another was great. And yet the task was also equally as great. Because it, it was so difficult, the, the snow was, you know, so, so thick, the terrain was so icy, there was no way to fly there, uh, it just wasn't safe. And so they did what they could, they worked up a plan, and the best solution that they came up with was uh, to send it halfway by train, and then to cover nearly a thousand miles with Iditarod racers, with, with these, you know, sleds, these dog sled teams. And so they worked diligently. And there were several teams, 20 mushers total, 150 dogs, and they kind of created this relay so that they could accomplish this mission. And, and they did it in 127 hours. Because of their efforts, only five children's lives were lost, even though hundreds of them had been affected by this disease. The, the record of reaching this destination in 127 hours, even though it is a sporting event now, has never been repeated. What happened? They realized that lives were at stake. The message was urgent. It had to get there on time. 
in order for this hope to take effect. Many refer to the, the race to get it there on time as the great race of mercy. That's how it started in 1925. But if you were to look at the Iditarod races now, they, they run the same route every single year. And yet, there's not the same motivation. There's, there's a competition for a pride, for, for a medal, to be the one that won. But yet, it doesn't seem that any lives are at stake. Uh, there, was, there was once a time in which these guys were essentially nameless. Because the goal was, was not to make a name for yourself, but, but to get the life-saving serum there on time. And yet now, these racers, these mushers, they're, they're like local celebrities to everyone. Everybody has their favorite team. Everybody's talking about the technique that they think is the most effective. It's kind of become all about just kind of doing the thing instead of really being urgent to save lives as was originally intended. And I think there's a, there's a, a good moment here as we consider this story to examine the church. And what we see that this message of the gospel is urgent that people will only be saved if they hear the good news of Christ, trust in him, and believe in his name. And yet, I think we can all gravitate toward so much less than that. Just saying, well, well we think this is how things should be done and in a way that, you know, kind of, kind of best suits the people that are already in the church. And, you know, this, this is kind of uh, the person that, that I really enjoy listening to, or this is the place that I go that, you know, I feel most at home at. And none of those are bad things. And yet, whenever that becomes primary, and we lose the heart of the gospel message that Christ came to save sinners, to seek and save the lost, and now those that were once lost that have been found now have an urgent message to share with the world— if we lose that urgency and intentionality, then we are settling for far less than God desires of his people as lights in the world. And so if you were to summarize what we're going to look at in Romans 10, 14 through 21, I think you could say it something like this, that we are sent by God with the message of salvation so that others may be saved. We are sent by God with the message of salvation so that others may be saved. I, I love this because I think, honestly, whenever I look around the Oaks Church and consider who we are, this is not, this is not new to us. I, I think I, I'm so encouraged by the way that I see this lived out in the life of our church members. I remember whenever I was uh, really just kind of, you know, going through college. I was a sophomore in college, and I was praying. I was asking God, like, what do you want me to do with my life? And there was a moment in which I just got alone with the Lord, and uh, I said, I'm going to put my yes on the table, and then you give me the question. Right? You ask me whatever you want me to do, and I'm just going to say yes to whatever that question is. And I remember that night, uh, it was September 18th in 2010, and, and I was reading through this devotional on John 10 really wrestling with if my life would be like forever in Florida, if I would, you know, continue to, to run the business that my, my dad started, or if God was doing something else that would just call me completely out of my comfort zone. And I remember reading these words. It said, we shall find it sweet to go up the bleak side of the hill with Christ. And when rain and snow blow into our faces, his dear love will make us far more blessed than those who sit at home and warm their hands at the world's fire. 
So to the top of the mountains, to the dens of the lions, or to the hills of the leopards, we will follow our beloved, our shepherd. May the gospel captivate our hearts so much that we would be willing to say, Christ, you are a good shepherd. And wherever you would take me to make this message known, be it to the tops of mountains, to the, to the dens of lions, or to the hills of leopards, may I go. Because I cannot remain silent with this good news that I have received. That we are saved by God, to be sent by God into a world that is in dire need to hear this message. See, I was, I was gripped by an invitation into something that was far bigger than me, something that would outlast and outlive me, and that is the call that is on every single Christian's life. It's not necessarily a call to vocational ministry or to be an international missionary or to be a pastor, but there's a call for every single person, be it that you are a stay-at-home mom, a full-time student, or, or a teacher, that God would call you to leverage where he's placed you for his glory and for this gospel message to be made known. I'm convinced that as a follower of Christ, you have this longing to be a part of the mission of God, that you can only be satisfied if you throw your life into the great commission of God, like throwing a kite up into a hurricane. You will only be satisfied if you say, Lord, I'm, I'm completely yours. Make your message known through me. Could it be that sometimes we find ourselves so dissatisfied with maybe the major that we're pursuing or the job that we have because we're expecting it to provide something that it was never intended to? Maybe the, the satisfaction or the purpose that we're actually longing for is realizing that our workplace or our hobbies or our school is actually just providing the context for the greater purpose that God has called us all into, which is making this message known. Some of you maybe are, are sitting here and you would say, well, I'm not a believer. I, I, don't, I wouldn't say that Christ is my shepherd. What do I do with a message that seems like it's going to primarily be about telling other people about Jesus, and I almost feel like I'm the, the other people that are being referenced? Well, my desire is that you would be encouraged, that, that maybe you would understand the depth of this glorious grace as we say, as a church, we need to spend 45 minutes talking about how to get this urgent message out because there is no other hope for life and salvation. I pray that during this time, you would see yourself not as an argument to be won or a problem to be solved, but a person that is loved so much by God that he gave his own son to save you. Have you ever experienced that depth of love? Have you ever experienced the kind of grace that say, I know you in all of your flaws, in every failure you've ever had, and yet I love you still enough that in the moment that you would call upon my name, I would save you and make you completely new. That God sends imperfect people like me, I'm, I'm proof of that, to let other people know that there is room for them in the kingdom of God. It's my prayer that this would be an encouragement to us, that it would kind of rekindle maybe an urgency for displaying this gospel message, both in Cincinnati, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, and in the world around us. Now, as we look at, at Romans 10, it's important for us to understand the context here, because Paul has, has been, you know, writing this letter to the church in Rome, a, Rome that, uh, a church he hasn't met yet, 
And in Romans 9, he, he's talked at length about the sovereignty of God over salvation. That there are those that will believe because God has sovereignly chosen them to respond to this gospel message. So perhaps we get to the end of Romans 9 and we, we just throw our hands up and say, well, then it's not important to tell people about this gospel message. And yet in Romans 10, Paul is going to say, if this gospel is going to be heard, if it's going to be believed, then preachers of this message must be sent. Missionaries must go out and they must proclaim this message. Because even though God is sovereign over salvation, people can only be saved if they hear this message and respond to it. Now, some people might say, well, how do these two things coexist, these two truths that we are uh, humanly responsible to believe in this message and that God is sovereign over the entirety of salvation? And, and we would just say, this is, uh, this is above our understanding, right? Well, we say, you know, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. And yet at the same time, we would say that this is called an antinomy, Right, so, so two things that are completely true, uh, that they do not contradict one another, and yet they run as parallel truths that in our finite minds we cannot fully understand. Here's what we do know, that God is sovereign, and give, that gives us great encouragement, great assurance, and we also know that we have been given this glorious message to share to the world. And that's exactly what Paul is going to tell us in Romans 10, verses 14 through 21. Now, if you have your copy of God's Word, let's go ahead and read Verses 14 through 17. The Word of God says this, How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Let's pause right there. In this passage, I want us to see our responsibility and our role. In verses 14 through 15, we first see our responsibility. That if you have received the good news of salvation, you have the responsibility to share it with others. Here we find that Paul is asking a series of rhetorical questions. He asks, how will people call on Jesus if they haven't believed in him? And how can they believe in him or call on him if they've never heard of him? And how can they hear of him if no one is sent to tell this, if no one is telling this message? And how are people to tell this message if they've never been sent out with this good news? Now, all of these rhetorical questions have a very logical flow, but they're coming from what Paul has declared in verse 13. He says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is a promise that was given by the prophet Joel, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And before we understand just how important answering those rhetorical questions are, we must look again at that glorious truth. That anyone, no matter how far gone they might seem, no matter how helpless or hopeless their situation might be, no matter how much you have sinned against God, the moment that you call upon the name of the Lord, you are saved. What better portrait of that undeserved grace is there than the thief on the cross? I was reminded of this story again this week. He's hanging there beside Jesus. He's once ridiculing Christ as they hung there together. No fitness of his own, no way to earn this salvation, no effort that he can bring. 
as his arms are stretched out, pierced by nails. And then in humility, he realizes just how terrible the state is that he is in. And he looks to Christ, the Savior, hanging there. There's a change of heart. He realizes this man is no mere man, but he truly is the Son of God. And he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And I wish I could hear the the words of Christ back to him. He says, truly today, you will be with me in paradise. Call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. It's the power of the gospel message. Not here's the ladder that you would climb, here are the boxes that you should check. No, when Christ says, it is finished, you call on his name, you're saved. It's this glorious gospel message. But the rhetorical questions follow. Because people can't call upon that name if they've never heard the name of Christ. Paul begins asking, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Well, if you're to believe in Christ, you must know who he is. I mean, it's obvious. How can you surrender to the lordship and kingship of Christ over your whole life if you don't know that he was raised as the king over all creation? How can you apply the atoning work of Christ to your life to forgive all of your sins if you don't know that there is a Savior who came and lived a perfect life and then died for you? How can you confess Christ as your Savior if you've never heard anything about him? And so Paul says, well, if if people are to believe in him, then certainly they are, are to hear about him. And then he continues in verse 14, how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard. This gospel message must come to people. There must be a messenger to carry this message because this message always has a messenger. We then see the question, well, how are they to hear without someone preaching? Now, this, this word for preaching here, Caruso, it's not, it's not just referring to like what I'm doing right now or what happens on this stage. No, it's simply proclaiming. And so the, the preaching of God's word, bringing this about, fulfilling this question, removing the question mark and putting an exclamation mark on it instead happens whenever you're a parent and you're, you're reading a, a Bible story to your child before bedtime and you're proclaiming the excellencies of God. This happens whenever you share your testimony with a coworker and you're saying, look, I used to be an absolute wreck, but let me tell you what happened whenever I met Christ. That's proclaiming this message, preaching this message. This takes place uh, whenever, whenever someone's struggling with something at work. You say, hey, can I, can I pray for you and, and let you know whenever, where, where I find comfort because of who is ultimately in control of my life? You see, this message is heard as those who have this message preach it. Then the question is, well, how will someone preach if they are not sent? What does it mean to be sent? I love the way that Jesus said this to his disciples in John 20, verse 21. He said, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And the same applies to us. How has has Christ empowered you with the Holy Spirit, filled you with the Holy Spirit, and then sent you to the world around you in the same way his Father sent him? Isn't that amazing? that you have been entrusted with this great message. And many will be sent in a formal sense. We think about that. 
Uh, we're going through something through the end of November and the month of December that we're calling Operation 1-8 because there are missionaries that have been formally sent out. I invite you to pray for those missionaries that are on that card. We think of Mark and Mandy or uh, the West family that are planting a church in London or the UK booze that we're supporting that are planting a church in Miami. These hard to reach places. I think about all of those that are in our church right now who feel like God is calling them to full-time ministry, perhaps in the States or in another hard to reach place. And we will formally send those people out. They will be sent. We pray that God would continue to do that in the life of our church. And at the same time, we recognize that every single person that has received the gospel has a responsibility to share that message, that we are sent. The word there is apostello. The same word that apostle comes from is, is now applied to us in the fact that Christ has sent us into the world. That's why we say every member is a missionary. That's why we end every single one of our gatherings with the words, you are sent, because we want you to know that what takes place in this room is not designed to stay in this room, but it's to go out into the world. We have this great gospel message. We're not trying to discount the fact that that there are people who sacrifice everything to go to hard to reach places, and they are formally sent as missionaries whenever we apply the word missionary to us. But what we are seeking to do is elevate the fact That whenever you make plans for your weekend, the mission of God should come to mind. That whenever you think about the way that you spend your money or invest your time, the mission of God should come to mind. That you could find this glorious purpose that is bigger than you, that will outlive and outlast you, because that is exactly what God has invited us into. And it's cool whenever you look at this passage and see that the the questions are are being asked. And I think it, it kind of draws a sense of urgency in us. And at the same time, if you are to flip these questions and read them from from finish back to the start, you'll see this simple and achievable plan to take God's mission to the world. Because what do we know? Well, God sends his people. God sends the church. And whenever we go into the world and we are sent, we begin to proclaim this message. We begin to plant seeds of the gospel in the lives of those around us. And, And what are we promised as we do that? That people will hear And what will happen as people hear? Well, people will believe. And what will happen whenever people believe the truth about Christ? They will call upon the name of the Lord. And what will happen when people call upon the name of the Lord? Verse 13, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Is there anything greater that you could give your life to? Is there any vision or five-year plan that could grip your heart more than the fact that someone could forever be with you worshiping God in eternity because you had the courage to share this message? That's why Paul here quotes from Isaiah 52, 7, saying, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. I remember one of the first mission trips that I went on to Ecuador, and we were, we were sitting there with the missionary that was the career missionary there, And he said, as I look around this room, I see beautiful feet. And I was like, this is weird because I did not know Isaiah 52, 7. I wasn't this familiar with Romans 10. And yet he began to explain the heart of this passage. How beautiful are the feet that carry this good news message. I want to give you both the cultural context of what is happening here as Isaiah 52 is quoted and also the biblical context for what is taking place here. Because both of these, I think, cement our understanding of this good news message. 
You see, during the time of Isaiah, it was very common for you know, a, a nation to be under war or uh, for, for there to be some sort of threat of attack, and they would send their military out to fight on some plain, far away from the rest of the village, far away from the rest of the town. And the entire time that the military was away seeking to fight this battle, the whole city waited anxiously, knowing that a message would return to that city, and it would either be, we were not victorious, we lost. And then you would know that your life as you knew it is over. It's likely that your home would be pillaged, perhaps even burnt down. You would become a a lifelong servant, split up from your family. That's bad news. And at the same time, there was a watchman up on the tower, and he would look off in the distance, and he would see the messenger running from battle. And if that messenger, as, as the small figure on the horizon grew closer, and if you could see that there was a smile on his face as he was running with passion, and he burst into that city and proclaims good news, then you know that there is a freedom that can't be taken away from you, that there is a joy that can't be expressed in the human vocabulary, that there is a new hope in life that you never thought possible before. And you say, how beautiful are the feet that bring good news. Wouldn't you want to share that message? At the moment that that messenger ran into the village and said, we are saved, would it not cause you to run out into the field and grab someone by, by the shirt collar and say, we're saved. There's this message of hope that we have received and this changes everything. Would you not run through the city slamming open the doors for perhaps anyone that didn't hear this message? Would you not crawl through the cross spaces in the town just seeing if there was anyone else left that needed to hear this good news of salvation that has come of no work on your own? Would you not laugh about it with friends later as you talked and said, man, do you remember that day? And how this good news came and it changed everything. Would you not tell your children that then they would go and tell their children's children that an entire new legacy would begin from you because you received a message that changed everything? We absolutely would. And how beautiful are the feet that bring good news to us so that we can take this good news to others. I mean, I can't help but see the parallel here that is being drawn from the book of Isaiah, that Christ went and fought a battle on our behalf and he took nails to do it. He did it on a splintered cross. He went to war with sin, Satan, and death and emerged victorious so that he proclaims the good news to us that any who call upon my name will be saved, will be welcomed into the arms of the Father and filled with the Holy Spirit to have an eternal life that is an immeasurably greater gift than you could ever imagine. And this is the message we get to share with the world. You see, those in Isaiah's time, they clung to this message because they would receive it And for 700 years, they would wait for Christ to come. They clung to this message as as Assyria destroyed northern Israel, as as they went into captivity, as even southern Israel was then taken over by Babylon and they were exiled. And they clung to this message that one day this good news would come. And this good news did come. Christ came as the one who brings good news to those that were yet to hear it. And yet, what we find in verse 16 is that many heard this message and did not obey. 
What should we do with that reality? This leads us to our role. Our role is to share the gospel, but we must trust God with the results. I hope this is deeply encouraging to you. Our role in in this God's great plan of salvation is, is to share the gospel. And yet the results of what takes place are completely up to God. Let's look at verses 16 through 21. It says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Well, indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? Well, first Moses said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Here we see that Paul is drawing from from many Old Testament passages to show that God is faithful. God has kept his promise to save. And there are those who he has called out of ethnic Israel who will trust in the gospel and believe the gospel. But there are also very very many that have have heard this gospel message and have not believed. Paul was once evidence of one who had heard this gospel message, and he was against it. He was a persecutor of it. And yet, by God's grace, a work in his heart, he, he began to see the promises that were given to the Israelites throughout the Old Testament were all fulfilled in Christ. And the gospel is the pinnacle of everything that the Old Testament had pointed to all along. But it leads Paul to ask this question, or to make this observation in verse 16. He says that they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? He's saying, many, many hear this gospel message and they don't believe. He's able to look at many of the Israelites during that time and, and consider that that is a reality. Now, as, as Paul pulls up these Old Testament verses, I would really encourage you, because we don't have time to do it in, in our time now. I would like love to do it in our time now. But each time he pulls up one of these Old Testament passages, it's almost as if he's like pulling a thread that, that draws on this entire tapestry of like the, the surrounding chapters around it. And so he quotes from Isaiah 53.1 here, whenever he says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And he's drawing on the entire context of Isaiah 53 that Adam read a part of earlier. Even Isaiah said, Lord, why are people not believing in this coming Messiah, this suffering servant? Why would people not believe this message? As Adam read earlier from Isaiah 53, that there is one who will be pierced for our transgressions and the entirety of our iniquity will be laid upon him. Why would people not receive that good news? And we know that it's because many of them thought that the law was so that they could earn their own self-righteousness and earn their way to God and neglected this humble confession that Christ alone would save. Or that in Isaiah's time, the Messiah who was coming alone would save and faith in him was the way that you have a relationship with God. How could people reject such a clear and wonderful message? It's because the results are up to God. We are responsible to share, but the results are up to God. May this be an encouragement to you. 
as, you, as you're faithful with this gospel message, may you measure success in your ministry. If you're a young life leader or one of our missional community leaders, or you're sharing the gospel with your family this week at Thanksgiving, may you measure success by your faithfulness and obedience to the Great Commission and not the results that you see that follow. I mean, I'm encouraged by the fact that Paul, the apostle, would say, yes, yeah, some people have heard this message and, and they didn't believe. That Isaiah would say, God, why, I'm pouring my heart out here. Why are people not believing? Maybe you've thought that. You said, you know, is, is there something wrong with the way that I'm presenting this? Is it because my life doesn't perfectly match up with what I'm trying to say about the grace of God? Like, what's going on? Is the problem me? And here we see well, the, the responsibility for you is to share. And then you can rest in the work of God as he does what he wills with the seed that you have planted. And so, so then the question is, well, well, many will not believe, and yet we also see that many will believe. In verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That as the word of Christ is proclaimed, many will have faith as they hear. Many will trust in Christ. We see that faith is both received from the word of Christ and that it is revealed through obedience to Christ. Many did not obey this message that they heard, but many that will hear this message will obey. They will have faith. They will be changed. I, I love this. I think there's a call here whenever we see that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ to make sure that our message is the message of Christ and about Christ that is centered on the word of God and saturated with the word of God. That whenever you share the gospel message, you're not just kind of glossing over the things that might be a little bit less palatable. You know, I'm not gonna really press in on sin. I just wanna press in on like the joys of following Jesus and, you know, kind of remove the confession piece. I don't wanna want scare them with, you know, the eternal reality of hell. So maybe, maybe they get saved and then we talk about that afterwards. And yet what we see here is that it is the word of Christ that has the power to save. So there's a caution here to tamper with this message. And at the same time, there's a beautiful promise that the word of Christ has this power. Look at the life of Christ throughout the gospels. Every single time he opens his mouth and speaks, a man that had been dead named Lazarus walks out of a tomb. Someone who had never heard audible noises begins to hear because Christ spoke. The same, same voice that echoed throughout creation is calling the blind to see and the crippled to take up his mat and walk. That is the power of the word of Christ. And you, when you share the gospel message from scripture, you utter the same words. And the word of Christ has great power. So we proclaim the word of Christ. And what do we see? That, that the response is obedience. If, if verse 16 tells us that we see a lack of faith because there was not obedience to the gospel, then we can infer that, that this evidence of faith is that people obey. People say, Lord Jesus, you're Lord of my life now. Faith comes through hearing. There's a, a play on words here in the Greek that you miss if, uh, you know, just kind of in the English because the root word for hear is akuo, and then the, the word for obedience is hupa akuo. So it's like the word hupa or huper is the prefix that we get our word hyper from. All right, so obedience is just kind of like hyper hearing. It's, it's the same way whenever I, you know, look at my boys before I leave the house and I put my hand on Brooks's shoulder and Charlie's shoulder and I say, all right, boys, listen to your mom today. 
Now, what I am not saying is make sure you are within earshot of her voice all day long. No, what I am saying is whenever she tells you something and you hear it, make sure you apply it and do it. Well, in the same way, this faith that is received and heard is applied through our life and Christ becomes our only hope. That is faith. Faith is the hand which takes hold of this glorious gift of salvation. And we share this message because the word of Christ has the power to save. I once heard a story that I think conveys the power of the word of Christ. Many of you are familiar with the great preacher Charles Spurgeon. And there was a day that he was preparing to preach in this place called the Agricultural Hall. It's this you know, huge venue. And he's testing out the acoustics in the room. So he makes his way behind the pulpit. And he, he echoes these words from John 1.29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And you just hear it echoing throughout the room. And it wasn't long, a couple hours later, that this young man had been working up in the rafters, repairing some of the beams, and he comes down. And he says, I was up there, and I heard those words, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I said, I'm a sinner in need of grace. And in that moment, I prayed that the Lamb of God would become a sacrifice for me and that he would be my Savior. One verse, the power of God to save, to bring about faith. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. May we proclaim this week, not because we believe that we are so persuasive or because our presentation is perfect, but because we firmly believe in the power of God to save. Well, maybe someone would say, well, well, what if this message, you know, hasn't been heard? What if this message wasn't understood? Well, Paul addresses each of those objections here. In verse 18, he says, but I ask, have they not heard? Well, indeed they have. He's speaking specifically about the Israelites during that time. Have they not heard this gospel message? Perhaps that's why many of them are not receiving it. Well, then he quotes Psalm 19.4, and he says, Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. That verse that speaks of you know, God's revelation to the whole world, Psalm 19.1, The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim his handiwork. He's saying that God has made himself known throughout all the, wor- all the world in a general way. And those who receive the gospel have received it in a specific, special way, if, if you use the language of special revelation. And he's saying, I can apply that verse to, to those who have heard this message and rejected it. There, there's no way that you can say, well, you know, all of the Israelites, they're, they're not believing because they didn't hear. I mean, Paul went throughout cities, and this message has been widely proclaimed. And, and then he says, well, maybe people would say they just didn't understand and then he points to the words of Moses from Deuteronomy 32, 21, saying that, that they should have understood because Moses himself said, there will be a day that you begin to see people who are, are not the people of Israel calling upon the name of the Lord because of, of the time that you turned away and worshiped other gods. And in that day, you will know that this is the fulfillment of my promise, that you have turned away from what is right. Whenever you begin to see Gentiles coming to faith in God in mass number, this should almost be like smelling salts for your soul to help you see that, that God has done something that has, in a widespread way, been rejected. That's why Moses said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. God is using jealousy here, not in a revengeful way or in a spiteful way, but as a way to woo his people back. 
Say, look back at what the prophet said, what the priests did in their sacrifices. Look back at the promises that I had made. Look and see that all of this was pointing to this great reality of the gospel. You are lost and wandering. Please come back home. And what, what does Isaiah say? This was even being fulfilled in his own time. God said, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But in verse 21, he says, But of Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Do you want to see the heart of God on display for those that don't know him? See him holding out his hands for those that do not know him. See him holding his arms out and proclaiming, All who call upon my name will be saved. See the Father's love for the world so much that he would send his own son into it to draw sinners to himself at great cost to himself. See him wooing with his hands outstretched. This is the grace of God to show himself to a people that did not seek him and to call those to himself that could have never deserved it. I'm greatly encouraged by the one who wrote this message, one who was obstinate against the faith, one who kicked against the goads, if you will, of, of this gospel message and then realized that God was holding out his hand to a disobedient and contrary people. I've got more in my notes than I can say right now about this, but we see that God is, God is not condemning people in, in a way that they can say, well, you know what, this has nothing to do with me because God's sovereign over salvation, and that's why I'm not believing. Now, what does the scripture say here? They reject because they're disobedient to this message. Their heart is contrary to the promises of God and the grace that he gives, and there is no contradiction here in this reality. What we find is that Paul is not being irrational, but that he is being supra-rational, as he points to both of these realities, God's sovereignty and man's full responsibility in hearing this message, rejecting it, and being disobedient to the promises of God. And yet we find that today, if you are under the sound of my voice, God is holding out his hands to you, and that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So what do we do with this truth? Let's look again at our responsibility to share and our role in proclaiming this message. Quick applications here. The need is great. I can't express to you just how great the need is to make this gospel message known. As of today, 59% of the world's population is unreached. That means that 4.6 billion people live in a place where there are less than 2% of Christians in their people group, and they will likely die without ever hearing the name of Christ. 4.6 billion people. Those are grandmothers and fathers, those are children. The need is great, and it is urgent. Today, 157,690 people will die, and they will enter into a Christless eternity because they have not believed this message. And how will they believe if we don't preach? And how will they preach if we aren't sent? And how will you be sent if you don't go? So we go. The church is called to equip and to send Last year, we were a part of financially supporting the International Mission Board through the, through the Southern Baptist Convention, and we were able to send 4,000 new missionaries to the field 
90% of which went to unreached places. 96 new people groups were reached with the gospel for the very first time in 2021 because the church is called to equip and to send. We see that Paul was writing this letter, not just to inform the church in Rome, but to prepare his way to go to a, as a missionary to Spain. We know that from church history and scripture that he didn't make it there, but he firmly believed that local churches were always the anchor to making this message known because the local church is God's plan A to make his mission known to the world. And so, yes, we support other organizations. We partner with, you know, college-based, you know, gospel organizations and orphanages and nonprofits in our city, but it's because we believe that our role as the church is to make this message known. In 2023, we plan to send over $70,000 outside of Cincinnati to be a part of the international work of God in the world. So, so our church, we're committed to this, to equipping missionaries, to raising up and to sending out. And it's our desire that every single week you would leave this room more equipped to share this gospel message than before. That's why we have equip classes at 9 a.m. to talk through tough topics that might be a stumbling block to people, to go through apologetic questions that people might raise so that you can not only defend but share this great news to others. In Acts 13, 2 through 3, we see that when the church in Antioch was praying together, the Lord set apart Barnabas and Saul to be sent out. They were financially supported because this mission of God is greater than us. It outlives us and outlasts us, and we long eagerly to be more a part of it than we are right now, and we celebrate what God has already done through it. We have three options biblically. We can be those that are sent. We can be those that stay here, hold the rope as we send others, or we can be disobedient to this gospel call. I want you to know just as a, a quick pitch that uh, if you're a college student getting ready to graduate, you can be sent as a full-time missionary to one of these hard-to-reach places for two years, completely funded. Then return, get a job, have, have said that you went out and served in this way for two years, and, and then figure out what the rest of life looks like after that. If you maybe feel like God is calling you to one of these hard-to-reach places, if the number 4.6 billion seems to dissatisfy your soul in a way that you're saying, I need, to, I need to go, then you can be trained, equipped, and sent by the organization that we're a part of, be supported full-time, and spend the rest of your life making this gospel message known in a hard-to-reach place. You can do that here as well. See, we believe that lost people are saved and saved people are sent and sometimes we're like, well, you know, I, I just don't think I can do this. And yet in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, there's this beautiful picture of each person that has received the gospel. Paul says, we are like those who have this great treasure in jars of clay. We are unimpressive and imperfect on the outside. And yet we have this great treasure within us, which is the gospel message to make known to the world around us. We believe that God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. And we are glad to be used in the hand of God. So what's our role? We share, but God brings the results. We know that not everyone hears, that hears will believe, but everyone that will believe must hear. Not everyone that hears will believe, but everyone that will believe must hear. So we proclaim this gospel message. We take this message into the world around us. I invite you to consider who is close to you but far from God and how you can bridge that gap. Who has God uniquely placed you alongside that is close to you but far from God, and how can you bridge that gap? If you read through the book of Acts, you will notice that as God is preparing the recipient of the gospel message, he is always doing something in the heart of somewhere, somewhere else, someone, some, someone somewhere else to take that message to them. 
Look at Acts 8. There's this Ethiopian eunuch, and he's reading the scroll of Isaiah, and he's like, I've got no idea what's going on here. And at the same time, there's Philip, completely over here, completely unrelated, and God's saying, hey, I want you to walk down this road. And then he bumps into this guy in a carriage, and he's like, hey, what's up? And he's like, I'm reading this scroll from Isaiah. It says that there's one who's pierced for my transgressions. Like, do you know who that is? He's like, yeah. It's pointing to the Christ. In Acts 10, there's this man who feared God but didn't know Christ named Cornelius, and he, he receives a vision from an angel, and we're kind of wondering, well, why didn't, why didn't the angel just share the gospel message? But at the same time that he's saying, hey, look for a man named Peter, Peter's sitting up on a rooftop, rooftop, gets this dream of a blanket coming down. God says, hey, Peter, take this gospel to those who don't know God. These people come and they say, hey, are you Peter? Like Cornelius, our friend, is looking for you. He goes and he shares this message and Cornelius is believed. And everyone around him becomes believers as well. As God is preparing the recipient of this message, he's also preparing the one who will share And the same is true. If there's someone that God is placing on your heart right now, perhaps it is that God has been working on that person's heart for years. And you're going to be the person that shares that message with them. We see in Acts 16 that Lydia is down by the river praying. Paul just, you know, weeks before had received this vision to go to Macedonia and to share this message. He walks down to the river. There's this woman named Lydia there praying. And she's saying, I'm I'm praying. I, I want to know God better. And he's like, well, you heard of Jesus. She believes and is saved. Like, like who could God be working on right now that is coming to mind for you that you could take this message to? I think this is also a great reminder that mission is just as much about our sanctification as it is about someone else's salvation. I've learned that over over the years, that missions, living on mission for God is just as much about what God is doing in us as it is about what we're doing in the life of, of others that he's teaching us to trust him. He's making us more patient. He's breaking our heart for those who are like sheep without a shepherd in the same way that Christ's heart broke for us. He's working all of this in us. And we see that God pursues those that do not deserve it. Praise God for the beautiful feet that bring good news, that we are able to take this gospel message into the world because Christ came into the world for us. How beautiful are the feet that bring good news. How beautiful are the feet that entered into creation, lived a perfect life, and were then pierced on the cross for our transgressions. How beautiful are the wounded feet of Christ that have welcomed us into the family of God. How beautiful are the feet that walked out of the tomb on Easter morning, proclaiming that anyone who calls upon his name would be saved. How beautiful are the feet of our Messiah who has come for us. May we not be content until the whole world hears of the beautiful feet that brought good news to us because we will take this good news to others. Let's pray.